0: This is the new intro song, it's an Alan Parsons Project <laughs> joint. <laughs> it sounds kind <laughs> of uh, ESPN-esque, or at least early days ESPN. Yeah, I was. Uh, it sounds like Roundhouse Rock, yeah, uh, which is the famously the uh N- nba on nbc oh. from uh, the jordan's heydays yeah you uh, recognize it john i do even though you're not a huge fat bas- basketball <laughs> basketball fan did you just call me a fat basketball fan <laughs> yes i did i <laughs> am none of those things good sir thank you very much <laughs> No, but we, we figured this uh, surprise boo party, it's the 150th episode. Let's, let's change things up a bit. Let's, yeah. let's introduce a new segment that we're going to start every episode with going forward until we get bored of it. And that is, we're going to start off with the news.
1: I've got the
0: news, the news. News. News.
1: You have meddled with the primal
0: forces of nature, Mr. Beale! Spoop a boop, 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 a boop, boop, boop. The news. Yeah, I like our episodes to have a timeless quality until we run out of things to say, <laughs> and hence we look at the, what's in the headlines, huh?
1: What's in, what's, let me. Open I love up the how paper you. Here. I love
0: this idea that you think you, there are podcasts out there with timeless qualities. Like,
1: oh yes, indeed. Let there me revisit that. An, a number of podcasts.
0: Indeed, there are. There are a number of podcasts Bullshit. that I revisit. It's true. Name them. I I don't want to because I'd be embarrassed. <laughs> oh, I, it's, it's embarrassing enough oh. that I already. Admitted to re-listening to podcast episodes, sometimes more than once, but uh, it's a long work day, So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Greg, with Wonderly, ch- you know, chugging out these true crime podcasts, partnering with yeah. you know, the Franklin Gazette or whatever, you'd think that you'd be able to find something new to listen to. I I I'm over true crime. Oh. Um, it's been ruined by white women, as as many things are. Oh wow. <laughs>
1: Sorry, I'm not generalizing.
0: Yes, of course. But, mm-hmm. but I find uh, the podcasts that I re-listen to um, talk about broader subjects. They they take a current event and, and broaden it to something else. Mm-hmm. So let's start with perhaps the, the news that's on everybody's lips mm-hmm. uh, as of this recording, the recent uh, awarding of the Emmys this mm-hmm. year. Uh, low-budget show that nobody watched, so yay! Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Prepare for the Mantel Twins hot take on the subject four days later. Yes, yes. I, as far as I could tell, it was a bad show that nobody watched, including us. John, mm-hmm. your thoughts? Uh, it was a bad show that nobody watched. Okay, great. <laughs> on Fox of all stations. What? Yeah. So you said it's a low-budget show. Yeah. I understand that they didn't have a host this year, like the Oscars, mm-hmm. was it last year or a year prior? Again, time is just a flat circle, and I can't keep track of these things anymore. Mm. <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's complicated for the... Actually, I find the Emmys a little more complicated, because when do they decide is the cutoff point for the nominations? This always uh, I think, me. I think at the end of a season, the, the end of the official, or at least uh, antiquated network season, so around May. Okay. Okay. May is the cutoff point, hence why Chernobyl, which I believe started airing at that time, did qualify for awards this year. But do, and when they nominate like specific performances from specific episodes, does the episode have to air? Or is it just that's when the premiere date has to have started? I think that's when the premiere date has to have had started. Got it. Got it. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, this is just, I'm glad we're t- discussing this, it's just riveting <laughs> podcast material in which we look at Emmy qualifications, which is, which is funny because th- what shocked me was the amount of, of award nominations for Game of Thrones, particularly for uh, actors who appeared, I think, for a total of 10 minutes on screen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I, I'm speaking specifically of Alfie Allen. Um, <laughs> <laughs> was there anything that made him stand out as being particularly award-worthy? Uh, this season, John. uh he Go died ahead. in the the long night episode, so that was that's true. cool true yeah was no, I mean it's the night. same thing it's the same thing well, that's the one we're gonna inevitably compare this to the Oscars because we obviously care about the Oscars a lot more than we care about the Emmys, but that's the thing that they always say about the Emmys is when a show is in its final season. that's when all the accolades come out, just like when a when an actor is a line in winter and they've been yeah. nominated eight <laughs> times but never won that's when they finally get their award. No matter yes. how t- trashy or terrible the movie ends up being, at least, you know, they get their nominations. Same thing with, like, Game of Thrones. Oh, it's in its last season. let us It's an honor just to be nominated. Let's un- nominate for everything, even though I don't think it ended up winning a whole lot. Yeah, John, you don't even have to look outside the Emmys, because the plaudits for particular episodes are always the either the season premiere or the season finale. Uh, excellent point. Excellent point. Yeah. <laughs> or namely, the series finale. That's what I've noticed about awards, because... Th- even though it's for, like, episodic writing or directing or whatever, it's really they're trying to honor the whole show. Hence why uh, one moment I read about was the entire cast of, or whoever was available from the entire cast of Game of Thrones came out and Mm -hmm. just received Laws. So I don't know what that was for, if it was just like that. Do you remember that uh, 40th anniversary of uh, Saturday Night Live and they brought out Eddie Murphy just to stand there (laughs) and receive adoration? (laughs) It seemed kind of like that. Okay, got it, got it. Yeah which is not I got to be honest probably not very compelling TV. <laughs> well, so this is the interesting thing that I want to talk about. So the the ratings are in and they did terrible, of course. Yeah. Like 30% down from last year, which is a huge drop. And yeah. vulture had a or whoever the writer who wrote this article kind of brought up the interesting point that the Emmys are kind of the right headed stepchild of awards shows because they sh- they they hop around from network to network. You know they're trying to keep it fair and balanced, obviously. Yeah. So you don't have that you don't have that tentpole kind of uh, that tentpole uh, excitement that the Oscars generate, that the Country Music Awards generate, that yeah. the <laughs> Grammys generate, that the Tonys generate, because those all stay on one station. So obviously yeah, the, the network feels obligated to prop them up and keep them exciting. Well, I, and I also want to explore some background information to this, because you said this, this award show was done on the cheap. Mm-hmm. They didn't have a host, and even though uh, being an Emmy host doesn't bring all the controversy that the becoming an Oscar host does, mm-hmm. they didn't have a host, and that's because... Fox very recently got sold to the Disney Corporation. Indeed. And uh, so, they don't really have the, the budget that they used to have, apparently. Hence yeah, why, after the acquisition, all their shows that were you know cost more than five bucks to produce an episode got canceled. <laughs> yeah. Same with, uh, heck, their movie department. I mean, Dark Phoenix was supposed to be the culmination of the current X-Men series timeline. Mm-hmm. But with the sale to Disney, all their promotion got cut and they had a terrible opening weekend. And now uh, it's, it's seen as a, a massive flop for them. That's also what they expected because they had no money to promote to promote it. Yeah, exactly. And Disney wrote it off as a loss. So yeah, well, we didn't make a profit this quarter because of X Men. I guess they don't belong in the MCU. No, no if if anything, that's an excuse to bring them into the MCU. John. Oh, okay. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Yeah, but I think I think they're running out of steam. I think Kevin Kevin Feige is uh, is happy to go uh, reset the timeline, live at a farm in Georgia or something. <laughs> Definitely Georgia because it's cheaper there. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Anything else happening in the news, Greg? Anything else you want to touch on? Uh, No, not really. Other than um, I did want to do a mini spotlight on on a particular article I read. Mm -hmm. This is by Asita Nuevu in The New Republic. John, do you ever read The New Republic? If you are looking for something to fill yourself, uh, avail yourself of the time that you have sitting at a desk during your workday, New Republic is coming out with some good stuff. Okay. Greg, I don't have time to, because I'm busy working. (laughs) All right. Thank you very much. (laughs) Some of us have real jobs. Well, I mean, what's great about there are some apps that will actually read the article to you. (laughs) So it's like listening to a podcast. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't apply to every New Republic article, but it was a, it was a really good article called uh, The Cancel Culture Con, mm-hmm. and basically it it looks it gives you a 10,000-foot a overview of new term for cancel culture, and it's people complaining about people complaining about comedy. <laughs> it, it came up in the whole um, Shane Gillis fiasco, as well as the recent comedy special put out by Netflix uh, by Dave Chappelle. Mm-hmm a scene in a wave it was quick to point out that dave Chappelle is still the fifth highest grossing uh, stand-up <laughs> comedian in the nation uh all, everybody else is who's, who's canceled is still allowed to do stand-up and still invited to big fancy parties and still allowed to publish their books and it basically it amounts to uh, a con mm-hmm. and basically either feel sorry for me or you people have no right to complain those people being um in this case in the case of Shane Gillis, um, historically oppressed minorities. Mm-hmm. In the case of Dave Chappelle, sexual assault survivors. Mm. Yeah, so it, it's, it's a con just to either maintain your status, either pretend it's, oh, it's somebody else's fault. It's the children who are wrong, not me. It's <laughs> yeah, now out of step with a changing culture. <laughs> And to tie it a little bit more politically, like an, an ascendant progressive audience that is now able to reach people via social media. So, Are you saying, Greg, people like to play the victim? Is that the insight here? <laughs> John, I know it's never happened in history before, but uh, it does have its rewards, uh, playing the victim, mm-hmm. or at least, yeah, perceiving yourself to be oppressed. The only true victims are the good Christian fundamentals that our nation used to behold. But sadly yeah. now they are the most oppressed minority in this nation. So, exactly. well, I want to recommend a movie to you called and then there was, Let There Be Light." <laughs> I, don't <know. laughs> I don't know. I was just making sure. that one. Yeah, that one. I, I'd be shocked if there isn't already a, a terrible pure flicks movie <laughs> called "Let There Be Light." <laughs> About the true story ish of a pastor (laughs) who saw a cloud formation and then uh, wrote a best selling book (laughs) that nobody believed in him. Nobody thought he would say. But some egghead scientists tried to
1: shut them down. (laughs) Yeah.
0: No, it was atheist college professor John. They're the real enemies. That's true. Yes. The ones who have all the power. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, We have fun. We have fun. Yeah, we do. So that was the news.
1: News. News.
0: I thought that was a good dry run. I, sure.
1: <laughs> oh, shut up.
0: <laughs> Next time I'll be more supportive. alright. As I'm sure you will be supportive of the films that I choose to watch for this podcast. <laughs> I, you know what? We can only hope. <laughs> yes. The future's full of so many mysteries. We, we, we don't know the future. And we don't even know where we're going currently. Because no. our world is governed by madness. And we don't know what lies beyond the great reach. Welcome to Aspiring Snobs, a poetry podcast <laughs> where we muse on the futility of it all. John, why do you think, view things as futility? What, what, it, what pulls your soul such way, in such wayward directions? Well, I've been drinking a lot of vodka recently. Okay. And I've been, my, my mind's been pondering, what lies beyond the zone, Greg? What lies mm-hmm. beyond the zone? No, John, we have to venture into the zone. What?! To get our true wish, yes. For those that don't know what we're talking about, we're catching up on uh, a movie that's been highly recommended to me, and now I forced John to watch it Mm because I knew it would annoy him. (laughs) Um, It's the first film we've ever watched by the great Andrei Tarkovsky, Mm -hmm. and it's 1979's *Stalker*.
1: И говорят горам и камням: "Пойдите на нас, и скройте нас от лица сидящего на престоле, и от гнева Агнца, ибо пришёл великий день гнева его, и кто сможет устоять?"
0: stocks since the night. That's what this movie needed, a jazzier score. And just, that would have done it. It would have been like Birdman. <laughs> I mean, I did notice a few times where, like, uh, classical music was kind of creeping in a little bit like a little diegetically but yeah it, it lasted like 30 seconds it was layered under like 10,000 other sounds at any given time so it happened about three times in the movie I don't know what that meant but uh I was going I was going to ask you is it your favorite Russian composer Tarkovsky which is what I want to keep calling <laughs> Andrea Tarkovsky <laughs> surprisingly no there was a lot of Germans okay. there was a little bit of Wagner there was a little bit of Brahms but yeah I don't I don't remember hearing any uh, classic Russian uh, classical music which okay. is a real well, pity John, real pity anyway go, go, yes yes go John thank you for making those erudite references to classical music oh, well, would, would this, you expect anything less if you do aspire to film snobdom as you and I do mm-hmm. the work of Andrei Tarchovsky is, an, is a must explain why <laughs> give me <laughs> several reasons why um, because I find it's very uh, reminiscent of Russian literature, which is the kind of languidly paced a lot of philosophical conversations. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and he's also noted for his production design, just the the immersive quality of his work, truly incredible. And I hope you found that the same case here, like how exactly he shoots the locations. Oh, absolutely. This, yeah. I, yeah. The, the whole the, time I was wondering. I, that was the first thing I looked for when I after I finished the movie. You know, you start looking up trivia and things like that. First thing I was looking for was shooting location, which apparently is Estonia. So, um, what the fuck happened in Estonia? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure they embellish it slightly. Well, I mean. One thing that, having been to a former Soviet republic, <laughs> they are very committed to art. Mm. Unfortunately, they weren't very committed to uh, upkeep, so <laughs> <laughs> you could see how it really contributed to the mise-en-scene and this idea of a, of a zone that these three men, this trio of men are, are venturing into, mm-hmm. does look a little dilapidated and uh, unkept. Yes, but also it's shot in color, so what's there's Not some entirely. Con- there's some contrast there, because, yeah. okay, so plot get the plot out of the way um
1: our main character
0: our main character is a stalker a stalker's job is to uh shuttle people in and out of the zone the zone is protected by the government uh government guards it is a quarantined zone and so when we open the movie there is this yellow filter over high contrast yellow filter over everything he's going to uh get these clients across to the zone his wife chastises him he says you're you're actually it's beautifully well done the very first opening scene because he's trying to leave in the dead of night before they even wake up and there's these long tracking shots showing him on one side of the bed mm-hmm. and showing the family on the other side of the bed great job direction yeah. mwah you know French chef's kiss mwah yes. beautiful um But what confused me is the fact that outside the zone, we're filtering everything through this piss yellow lens, which is very effective and very kind of off-putting. But then we actually go to the zone, and then everything is luscious green. Everything is actual full color. Like, everything feels very kind of natural. And maybe it's because, again, he's trying to capture that sense of untouchedness, that everything kind of goes back to a very natural state once we get into the zone. Your thoughts? There, there, there may be two reasons behind that. One artistic, one more practical. Mm-hmm. I think artistically, he wanted to demonstrate that because this zone, like we're, we presume at least our cultural understanding is, is, we immediately think it's a quarantine zone because of some sort of nuclear disaster.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: This is this movie was released in the midst of the Cold War. The threat of nuclear war was kind of looming over everything. So our first thought is. That it's that it's some kind of nuclear disaster. Also, the what Soviets little... have a history of covering up the true story.
1: Let's be yeah. honest. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yes, this was before Chernobyl, but that's the supposition. The what little story clues were given is that it's actually a meteorite crash, mm-hmm. and this government's kind of which um, Russia keep... also has a history of as well. Yeah, well, because it's so big. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, they've got a, a huge landing pad for the, that sort of stuff,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and so th- our our. It, even though it's contextually in the movie a, a, meteor, uh, a meteorite crash, like our, our supposition that this is a very dangerous zone. However, because of the misinformation around it, they also believe that oh, there's at the center of the zone is this room where all your deepest wishes come true,
1: mm-hmm.
0: like it'll give you purpose and happiness, which uh, these three guys are sorely in need of. <laughs> Because I also love i as you said, I love those tracking shots. I also love the big wide shot of the bar that they're in, yes, <laughs> it's a very I love it when shot. like rooms have their own character, so yeah, it has this deep yellow filter, like almost like sickly, mm-hmm. like a really kind of ugly look. I think that was artistic to make the make the zone look much more verdant and appealing once they do finally enter it. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing, and I didn't know this about the movie is that it was shot over like the course of the year and and things kept messing up. Do you remember in the middle there's a title card like part two and i was wondering oh what the heck is that it's apparently when they restarted they had to restart filming Mm -hmm. because everything they shot got screwed up in in the lab oh and so yeah it's like the the whole movie had a whole new change in tenor and that's why um they they appended that little part two title card in there oh i had no idea So i didn't notice any changes honestly um In terms of like wardrobe or lighting or anything like that, it all felt very consistent to me. I just assumed because this movie's three hours, like of course we need to break it up into chunks. <laughs> um, but also, once they get into the zone, um, uh, let's just get out right out with it. This movie's very obtuse. Um, yeah. we're, we're explaining the plot like there's a huge amount of detail involved. There's really not. Uh, all no. my characters are basically defined by their professions. We've got our stalker whose job is to ferry people into the zone uh, yep. under the auspices of night or whatever. Um, then we have a professor, and he wants to be in the zone because he wants to study it scientifically. And then we have a writer, and he wants to go into the zone so he can muse about it and, oh, just... Yeah. All sorts of flowery dialogue about what is the meaning of life and what is it what does it all mean? you know, yes. very Russian and obviously he's a writer so he drinks himself nearly to death every day. <laughs> nice to know that some cliches never go out of fashion. <laughs>
1: Что ж ты? Вот же хочет это уничтожить, что же надежда ваша, хочет что-нибудь, Ничего не осталось. У людей на земле больше. Это ведь единственное, единственное место, куда можно прийти, если надеяться больше не это, что... Ведь вы же пришли! Зачем же уничтожаете веру? Да, да
0: we have our representations of literal thinking versus figurative thinking, mm-hmm. and that basically makes up the plot. Most much of these uh, uh, conversations. Unfortunately, I didn't find them very memorable because they're not really in the context of anything. No. Um, what I find the most compelling is that even though the stalker is leaning into the zone, he actually follows from behind, mm-hmm. and he throws out and he throws out these these nuts with strings on them, presumably to look for traps or, or any pitfalls. Mm-hmm. But it basically says like, Okay, Professor, you go and I'm gonna follow you instead.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so like I think I think that plays into it like purpose like it it people aren't really following their job so they don't really know what their purpose is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But the, the plot doesn't really carry them along. It's or their actions are really dictating it. That's kind of the problem. That's why I wasn't really emotionally leading into it or emotionally leading into it, which I think um
1: the,
0: unlike the person who recommended this movie, I need a romantic notion <laughs> to really uh, kind of draw me into the story. And Russian art isn't really about that. Well, okay, so I'm not going to complain and say like, oh, this movie's too obtuse. Because you can have obtuse movies. And so my points of comparison when thinking about this movie is uh, the, the hallmark, the champion of obtuse movies, 2001 A Space Odyssey. And yeah. then the other thing that I was very reminiscent of Watching this movie was one of my favorite movies from last year, Annihilation. Very similar premise Mm. where this alien force has taken over this segment of land. We have to go in. It's very dangerous. Probably took a lot of inspiration from this movie. Now, the key difference is for what they lack in uh, substantive uh, dialogue or action, what they make up for in metaphor. But this movie really doesn't have that either because there's really not a lot going on as well one of the great things about annihilation is the fact that the the threat is very omnipresent um it, it comes in many different forms whether it's you know some kind of gangly beast or also that their bodies are slowly kind of decaying or becoming something new here it's like uh, it, it's all left up to your imagination and even the characters as well like they they go stalking into this tunnel, and again, it's like you go first, and you know they're looking behind them, they're around every corner, but there's nothing there. <laughs> and well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say there's there's one big grain metaphor that it's that it's in place for. Like you could say that the zone is is a symbolic of a nuclear fallout or something like that. Mm-hmm. But what it's really, I think, uh, Tarkovsky does love symbols, and in the case that the main one he's working with is water. Mm -hmm. We should also explain that every scene is just drenched. (laughs) Yes, Um, (laughs) the the scene that's cast totally in a yellow filter, like it's raining the entire time, Mm -hmm. and they have to traverse these big long puddles to these ruined cities. And same here, like they have to like again crawl through like the the mist in this deep dense forest and once they do get closer to the room itself like they have to traverse these this deep pond that was that's one memorable sequence when they send the writer out first and he has got to wade Mm -hmm. through this tunnel and to finally get into the room and so like i think yeah even though there is an an overarching metaphor i think tarkovsky knows what he wants to say in terms of the the mise-en-scene i'm more like hung up on on who who are these people like inside of it Mm. And maybe that's maybe that's where also like the disconnect is, because um, as you said, those other two examples, like we kind of we kind of know who Dave the astronaut and how the robot are mm-hmm. in two thousand one, or at least who the other character like we're given context clues. Same with Annihilation, like well, there's enough there that... there's enough action to kind of justify and show who these people are. They're not just taking place in conversations, but all this movie has is really conversations. Yeah. And honestly, that kind of makes it, I don't want to say dull, but at least a little drier. Like, mm-hmm. if if they... If no pun intended. If, exactly. Because <laughs> he has some wet boys yes, by the end of it, let me tell yeah. you. <laughs> I was wet the whole time. Mm. <laughs> no, Give me those weren't. potato <laughs> No, you weren't. They were craggy faces. So Give good. me those potato heads. Mm. <laughs> uh, are you telling me a Russian man is balding? Hello. <laughs> Yeah, but you're right, there's not, there's, there's. no, um, like, ultimately, what happens is they, they go to a place, they talk, they go through another element where mm-hmm. not a lot happens, they talk, and then one of the other things that kind of bothered me is that the fact that, the, like, at one point, someone makes a phone call. Like, there's a working phone in the zone. Yeah. <laughs> and that kind of ruins the element of suspense as well, knowing that it's like, oh, yeah, everything's actually working just fine well, here. Well, this is, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it's playing with your ambiguity a little bit because, uh, again, the supposed room that they're seeking inside this zone mm. is supposed to fulfill your greatest desires. And remember, this is the college professor who wants to prove that he's right. Mm. And so, like, yeah, it's, I think it's playing a little bit fast and loose with reality, and you know he gets the call. And I believe later in that scene, uh, famously, if there's one trademark image, it's the writer finds like a, a a crown of branches, but they look like thorns, and he puts it on his head, head to imitate oh, Jesus. Yes, of course, yeah, yeah. Weighty symbolism there, and, dude. Good job. Yeah. And so that's that's what I really want to talk to is like, as you said, like the conversations because we're not given a lot of context behind these characters. Like, there's not a lot that we as Western audiences can identify with. Mm-hmm. Except for that writer character, like, as somebody who's, uh, as, <coughs> as a writer myself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Yes. <laughs> like, at least I could latch on to his ideas of, like, I'm, I'm out of inspiration, mm-hmm. or, like, he has, he has a long monologue where he, that he oh, delivers yeah. directly to camera, mm-hmm. that it, it basically intoning that he's completely useless to the world, yeah. uh, which is true.
1: experiment. <laughs> <laughs> Эксперименты, факты, истина в последней инстанции. Да фактов вообще не бывает, а уж здесь и подавно. Здесь все кем-то выдумано. Все это чья идиотская выдумка. Неужели вы не чувствуете? А вам, конечно, до зарезу нужно знать, чья. Да почему? Что толку от ваших знаний, чья совесть от них заболит? Моя? У меня нет совести, у меня есть только нервы. Обругает какая-нибудь сволочь рано, другая сволочь похвалит еще рано. Душу вложишь, сердце свое вложишь, сожрут и душу, и сердце. Мерзость выйдешь из души, жрут мерзость.
0: So this is this is a kind of pivotal moment where he actually gets to lead the charge. He gets to go first, and for a second they thought he was lost or whatever, and then he kind of comes out fine on the other side. But again, like that's what causes him to kind of think like, "What good am I to the world?" And you know, yeah. oh, they they want more. They leech. They leech off me. <laughs> Often, I Greg I assume feels the same way all the time. He always calls me. Absolutely. It's like, oh, they want my words. So many words. <laughs> Indeed they do, John. All I I feel are questions about when my next book is coming out. Mm. I'd be happy to tell you. but (laughs) Yes, the publishers really want to know, too. I know, yes, they do. (laughs) Hey, what happened to that advance we gave you? (laughs) Uh, Great question. So I went with these two other guys (laughs) on an adventure. We stopped at the bar first. That was our first mistake. (laughs) (laughs) That actually turns out to be the most important part of the journey. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So again, maybe a little bit too fast and loose with the details. Yeah, I don't mind. It, I don't mind a movie that operates on dream logic, but you do have to yeah. have some kind of grounding in reality to remind us that maybe the characters are kind of out of their minds. This is why I don't like David Lynch movies, because David Lynch movies never leave the dreamscape. There's never like a moment no. that says like, "Oh, it could all be in the character's head," because it, it's always dream logic from here until eternity. So same thing with this movie, and the fact that there's three of them and one, and it's not like one sees things differently than the other. They're all kind of experiencing this mac- mass psychosis at the same time. Like for me, I, I don't buy it as much, and like, yeah. uh, and that's the thing. Like every kind of criticism I have for this movie makes me sound like a idiot. Like, oh, it doesn't make any <laughs> sense. obtuse. It's boring. Nothing happens. So it's like hard to complain about when. Visually, the movie is absolutely brilliant, and I understand why people love Tartofsky as a director, because he is the way he does these long tracking shots, and honestly, maybe a little too long. Like, yeah. Like, do we really like? I was talking about the scene where it tracks over the bed. Like, do we really need to track all the way over to him and then track all the way back <laughs> and, and all the way back to the shaking glass on the on the nightstand? It's more efficient, fewer setups that you have to do during a. Day. Okay. Got it. <laughs> do you know how, how much you have to move lights? <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was wondering too. Because obviously, I, I immediately gravitated towards the writer character. Mm-hmm. But, again, that's me projecting, like, a personal image onto a movie. And this being communist Russia, it's not about that. It's not about you, kind of the viewer. And so, like, should we appreciate it from, from like, a, a global perspective on, on what it's doing to, to kind of reach audiences and have this cult following many years after the Cold War has ended? Well, I do think and it is kind of about the audience, because one of the other interesting things he does is he breaks the fourth wall quite a bit. Yes. Yeah, character stand like when they are kind of intoning and monologuing they are staring directly into the camera it's all, it, it's a gr- it's visually very interesting the way use uses cinematography but it is also very stage like as well yeah that's uh, the other director i was thinking of was uh, another non-english speaking director igmar bergman mm-hmm who does very enigmatic films but he's also like a, a dramatist he loves to like, like kind of like Hitchcock he loves to like twist your expectations or, mm-hmm. or throw a wrench into things and here like we never know the immediate threat of the zone or at least we never feel it no like if there's even one chance where a character is slowly creeping into a A house, and then the voice of God comes in, like, "Hey, don't come any closer," and he doesn't. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of what bothered me. Like I said, with annihilation, it's like they get attacked by crocodiles and mutated bears. (laughs) You know, here it's like they face nothing of that. Even the dogs are like friendly. (laughs) Yes, very cute dogs. Mm. Uh, Very good voice. I can report that the dogs in this movie are very good boys. And. Again there's nothing really romantic. There is that very opening plot setup as you said, uh, th- the husband's trying to slink away to do another stalking job. Mm-hmm. And the wife basically intones like you're useless, you're terrible husband, I hate you. <laughs> but he comes back and this is another moment and another famous moment where she delivers a poem directly to camera. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, it's, there's something very arresting about it, but, and it's finally as if, like, okay, there's something romantic that you can grab onto in the story. In this case, it's a, it's a woman accepting uh, her husband for all his uh, faults. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in this case, being uh, committed to a job that he really doesn't like. There you go. <laughs> and taking weeks, if not months, away from his family. Mm. Although, with the final implication being that maybe he ends up taking his daughter there... And I, then, that's a yeah. That's I th- I think like uh it, it, maybe he needed like a big uh maybe he felt maybe Tarkovsky felt like uh, Ingmar Bergman like okay I got to send him out with something <laughs> that really that are, a real showstopper. <laughs> uh, where's my star child? I need a star <laughs> child here. <laughs> <laughs> and indeed we get one because I don't I don't know how how much this has grabbed audiences in the in the uh, forty years since this movie came out but the final shot is uh we see our our poor girl who's been she's been derided as kind of like this this freak or this uh this this kind of burden on the family
1: mm-hmm.
0: like like she's deformed in some way even though outwardly there's nothing there's nothing really uh deformed about her but her she leans her head against the uh a table it's a long shot we don't know what's going on like or how this closes out the movie but then she uses telekinetic powers to move a glass <laughs> And Well, it's kind of an interesting mirroring. I thought it was kind of mirroring the beginning where the glass is shaking because of the train going by. And obviously Ah. the implication is the fact that she's now in the zone and the glass is shaking. It's like, wait a minute, but there's no train out there. And then we realize, oh, wait, she's got telekinetic powers. And, you know, obviously that's when Magneto shows up to tease that this is part of the greater (laughs) X-Men universe, of Uh, course. You know, classic setup for the sequel. Yeah, I don't know... Was there any maybe again my simian brain couldn't quite pick up? Was there any notion that something supernatural was going? Obviously, there's something supernatural going on inside the zone, but I didn't. I didn't quite connect that with the family. No, and that seemed, and that does kind of make this ending feel a little out of place as well. Again, like I was thinking about it in terms of the connection of like he doesn't like his job as a stalker. He feels like he's kind of abandoning his family because of it as well so what is the ultimate resolution? Well, he ends up taking his family to the zone. That's kind of the, the synthesis of the two worlds or something like yeah. that. I think that's that was my first interpretation of the ending with the daughter because she's obviously in the zone now. She's, she's in the zone. Get yeah. it? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's folk color, yeah. Um, but obviously the wife stays behind or something like that or they kind of leave the daughter. Yeah, but I... I with the whole, like, sense of, like, oh, she's a freak, like, that also seems very out of place. And I'm no nuclear physicist, but I don't think nuclear fallout gives you telekinetic powers, but I don't know, I, know. I, I didn't finish Chernobyl, so I don't know what the ending of that was like. <laughs> John, the the ending of, of Chernobyl also ends with a uh, concluding, tw- a huge twist. Oh, so. okay. <laughs> Turns out there were three other reactors there. Yeah, look for that, yeah. They didn't explode. What's going on? So... (laughs) I don't want to, like... Usually we sit from our thrones on high and decree, like, with our gavel that this this is worth your consumption and this isn't. Yeah, and I don't think but, we can do that with this movie. We really can't. No. Because this is an art piece, full and first and foremost. And so, yeah. I don't want to say, like, I just want to look at it kind of critically and be like, eh, like, uh, could could use a little work, <laughs> but <laughs> I can't, like, give it a hearty like, recommendation, like, yes, this is a good movie, stamp, this is a bad movie, stamp, <laughs> because it's an yeah. art piece, and as art, you know, we consumed it, and so there's your lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, there were things that I personally grabbed onto, very arresting imagery, however, like whether you really want to set aside 160 minutes of your time, yes, this is very long. <laughs> to yeah, to kind of of watch uh, middle-aged Russian men kind of talk through their personal foibles and uh, philosophies on life. I don't know. More power to you if you either do or don't want to do that. That that's what this podcast is about: empowering you to make informed decisions about the culture that you consume. And I think Andrea Tarkovsky is a a director worth consuming and seeking out um i'm not sure stalker was it though Hmm. well it's interesting because it had this movie while i didn't like love watching it it did get me excited to see his other work oh definitely i do want to eventually check out solaris and i do want to check out um mirrors i think is another big one that kind of came up in my searches for him like it it got me interested in his work and his war but uh, obviously i'm not excited Oops. to revisit it
1: anytime soon
0: <laughs> yeah yeah his final film the sacrifice is apparently another major achievement oh uncle is, paul so got me that Mabel. for dvd on dvd i should check that out okay yeah all right yeah or again from the person who recommended this one so <laughs> yes <laughs> or as to give it its proper russian title the sacrifice what the, what awful oh, terrible come on that was pretty good <sighs> i thought that was funny you suck <laughs> The, the of the sacrifice. Yeah, that was that was no better. That was that was the mine again. Uh Don't press <laughs> Sky are you looking not for the bathroom? <laughs> yes I am. Okay. Well, Greg, since we can't give this a full hearted recommendation because it's too b because uh, our brains aren't galaxy enough, maybe we could no. give leave some people with some recommendations behind. What do you say? I think that's a good call. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to stick to our bread and butter. We're not going to introduce a new segment to outro the episode. No. Instead, we're going to stick to we know what we know works. Because <laughs> uh, we've received plenty of feedback that says, more, more of this, please. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, we're going to end this episode with signature segment, Spotlight. 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 It's
1: time, Robbie. It's time.
0: Yes, this is how we conclude every show, mm-hmm. where we hopefully wholeheartedly recommend something uh, for our viewers to watch. Usually it's something that we watched recently. Yes. Um, and for me, this week, I've been catching up with, uh, I have Hulu, I don't like to admit it, because it, it makes me <laughs> look... It's now part of the D- the Disney High Club Exactly. And and Disney it, makes, it makes me look like a corporate shrill, shill, but yes. um, I have been watching a lot of Hulu recently. I've been catching up with a FX show that just ended its run this past year, it's Baskets. This is this is apropos because Zach Galifianakis is uh, invading another streaming service, Netflix, yes. with his uh, "Between Two Ferns" the movie. And now the show's over, so it has a lot more. He has a lot more free time on his hands. Okay. <laughs> uh, actually, what drew me to this uh, show is because it's written by uh, Karen Kilgrave, or she's written a. Uh, She's a staff writer on it, and she's written four episodes for it. And I don't know if you're familiar with Karen Gilgraph but uh, she's got a long history. No idea who she is. Uh, long history of uh, writing in Hollywood. She also wrote for like The Beat Home Show. Uh, just a lot of writing here or there. She dabbled in stand-up for a while, but now she's the current host of a little-known podcast that you might have heard of called My Favorite Murder. So, Oh, okay. Yeah. Some more wonderly true crime podcast. First of all, it's on the Exactly Right Network, okay? Shut up. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, sorry. <laughs> Which they founded, thank you very much. She's an enterprising yeah. woman, okay? Dang, yeah. They've, they've got some pull at uh, M- <laughs> MFM. Yes, <right>? they do. <laughs> yes, MFM yeah. is. Good job. You put letters yes. together. <laughs> More fucking mother- motherfucking. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, continue. Tell us about Baskets, John. Okay, Baskets. It is a show about chip baskets. Who is a trained French clown, or at least as the epi- as the c- as the series starts, he has just returned after flunking out of French clown school because he does not speak French, so he couldn't yep. <laughs> impart, he couldn't take in any lessons. He returns with his uh, new French wife, who she freely admits does not love him and uh, is only doing this for a green card. Uh, he returns home to Bakersfield, California. With Christina Baskets, played by the magnanimous Louis Anderson. Who just mm-hmm. does a fantastic job? Uh, there's yeah. several highlights of the show. He is definitely one of them because he just brings so much like classic mom energy to it. Just... Well, I, I was I was gonna ask. I mean, is there any controversy about a man playing a, a female part or uh, not? Not especially. Um, I think it's because he just does such a good job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I I think that's what I the, the why I wanted to bring it out because there's no controversy surrounding it. It's because it's non-controversially good. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> exactly. Um, he, What he does with the part, he, he says, you know, a huge inspiration was his own mother, and she just has that kind of, like, this classic mom energy where she just tries to make small talk with every single human being around her whenever she's out running errands. It's like, oh, what's that? That's cute. Oh, I like <laughs> yes. that.
1: I'm going to look Enjoy. into getting one
0: of those for myself.
1: Oh, you know, I I'm
0: like just... to splurge sometimes, <laughs> like... <yeah. laughs> In in what I'm assuming sharp relief to the brooding, uh, self-serious <laughs> clown played by Zach Galifianakis. Well, and that's that's something I kind of want to bring up about the show. The title is Baskets because even though Zach Galifianakis is playing the title character of Chip Baskets, it's really more about his family because Zach Galifianakis is also playing double duty as his twin brother Dale Baskets. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, which is basically his Seth Galifianakis. Exactly character. the exact same thing. He's got the high-pitched yeah. voice and the high energy, you know. Yeah. Um, Shave everything but the mustache. Exactly. Um, Both of them are cretins. Both of them are terrible human beings. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And it's kind of up to Christina to kind of hold things together. And that's the other great thing about the performance is obviously she brings, he brings so much of that mom energy to it, but also it's, it's covering up a quiet desperation. That's the weird thing about the show. It's, it's all about that kind of quiet desperation. It's, it's very important that it takes place in Bakersfield, California, because, these people live such drab depressing lives (laughs) and one of the weird things about the show and i don't know how i feel about it this is a show that was obviously like would never get greenlit ever in a million years so you have to wonder and also it was supported by louis ck but we won't talk about that (laughs) um It would never be green light in a million years. It's about, you know, poor people living in Bakersfield, California, one of them wants to be a clown. Uh, Very seriously wants to be taken seriously as a clown. (laughs) Ew. Yeah. So how does it get its funding? Well, a lot of it centers around Costco, and a lot of it centers around Arby's. (laughs) Every episode Mm. has to feature a, a segment in Costco or at Arby's. And there's, like kind of subtle product placement as well, like, you know, like, almost kind of, like, jokingly, like, hey, ma-, like, there's a there's an episode arc where Chip just kind of, like, quits it all and becomes homeless for, like, two episodes. He quits his job at Arby's, and, you know, he, like, disappears for, like, six weeks, and then when he comes back, you know, his manager's like, oh, thank God you're back. You've been on the schedule for, like, six weeks. Can you work the two o'clock shift today? <laughs> it's like, no, I can't. Like, ah, damn. Hey, Dale, can you work the two o'clock shift? <laughs> It's so like, sorry, I can't return to work yet. I'm I'm still going through some things. Like, hey, no worries. Arby's takes care of its own, okay? You're part of the Arby's family, all right? All right. And it's like, well, it's obviously meant to be, like, product placement as well, but it's also, like, meant to be kind of a joke. The fact that these people's lives are so sad and depressing that they center around Costco and Arby's. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. Mm-hmm. Like, whenever I see product placement that obvious, it makes me queasy. Mm-hmm. Uh Barry was a big offender of that. It's and presumably it's because HBO can't take advantage of those product placement deals in either Game of Thrones or Westworld. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. yeah, so. they gotta they gotta have Stephen Root say like, "What a deal! I got a Target." Mm-hmm. Or exactly, <laughs> let me walk in a frame with my Five Eleven backpack. <laughs> but that's the thing. <laughs> let me show you that logo again. Yeah, but that's the thing. It's like it's every single episode, so it's almost well. overbearing, but. Again, they always try to turn it into a joke. And it's also important because Martha Kelly's character works as, like, the Costco auto insurance. And it's also implying that she's doing a very bad job. <laughs> so it doesn't okay. obviously look, make Costco look that good. <laughs> There's a great episode where, again, just an insight into how sad Martha's life is. You know, they they come and interrupt her at her job. They just do it frequently. How did you guys get in here? Oh, we just walked in. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> and they're into, she's trying to field phone calls and then they just unplug her phone. Oh, good. Undivided attention. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> and then you hear in the distance they're singing happy birthday. Happy birthday, dear Martha. Martha, is it your birthday? Yeah yeah it is why are they singing it to her hey guys I'm Martha I'm over here (laughs) and they're like oh I'm sorry Martha do you want us to sing it again and she's like no it's okay oh good thank god and they just dump the cake on her desk and leave
1: (laughs) (laughs) this
0: this is so unlike uh, (laughs) Zach Galifianakis to play an unrepentant jerk (laughs) Well, it's just it's it's a it's a subtle show about people living lives of quiet desperation. So, yeah. Highly recommended from John Mantell. <laughs> okay, I, I I have been meaning to check it out as as a lot of different shows, um, but it, it's impossible. Oddly no. enough, hasn't gotten a lot of word attention. Maybe because FX or FXX now doesn't do a great job with that. Um, no, as as Sunny has written about before. <laughs> um, not that they care. Well, they do it great for their prestige dramas, like American Crime Story. But yeah, they don't. Yeah. I don't think they're great at campaigning for their comedies. Sadly, not that it really yeah. matters. Like again, going back to the Emmys, like Saturday Night Live won again, really, for this season. For this season, <laughs> I. John, they're speaking truth to power. Okay, Did you, uh, I didn't I didn't know about this Donald Trump guy until I saw his impression on SNL. Now I've got my reservations. Got to be honest. They really don't took like him the to the cleaners. Yeah, he does look don't stupid. Like the, yeah, don't like the yelling. Uh, <laughs> the way he treats Melania is unfair. I think. Mm.
1: All right. Well, enough about
0: me, Greg. What do, what do you have <laughs> for spotlight? Please share. Continue. I want to spotlight something I also saw this week. That was shockingly apropos in that its first act entirely, like Stalker, its first act entirely takes place in black and white, mm. and then the remaining of it, the remaining movie takes place in color. Mm. So you finally got around to seeing The Wizard of Oz. Cool. Nice. That that could have been part of it. That could have been an inspiration, much like Stalker. <laughs> uh, but it wasn't sepia tone. It was black and white. And uh, this is a movie I actually saw back in college. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important movie, or at least a movie close to my heart. And the Criterion Collection was was pumping the hell out of heck out of it. So, I thought, okay, I'll I, I'll go ahead and watch it. And I'm very happy I did because the movie's called Happy Together. Hmm. Sounds John, have you heard of this movie? It sounds kind of familiar, but there's a lot of. Hat movies with happy in the title so I, I don't know you're gonna have to you're gonna have to refresh my memory a little bit more this is a movie from Wong car Wai, the director of uh, another movie we looked at in the mood for love oh yes 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 yeah and this movie is also a love story but john very it's a, it's a love story between two men
1: Ooh. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> now i have your attention yes <laughs> i am fully erect with attention <laughs> Yeah, this is kind of a, his follow-up to uh, his breakout in the United States. It was called Chunking Express, and that was done with a lot of different style. And he brings that to here, only it's a story of a, of a homosexual relationship. It's about uh, a gay couple in Hong Kong who are having a, are hitting a rough patch. Mm. Uh, as the narrator intones, like, uh, we, we always have to start over. And it's because one guy is, is more the serious one, and the other guy is the more the, the partier and the philanderer. Mm-hmm. And so they... they they, the way, you're, you're, the way you just, sorry, just your, uh, the way you intoned, mm mm-hmm mm-hmm. there seems, uh, <laughs> this seems very true to life so far. <laughs> I mean, we've known all, we, we know all sorts of couples, I suppose. <laughs> it takes but all kinds, it, different strokes, you know? yes. <laughs> Yeah. The way in which they want to repair their relationship is a trip to Argentina. Mm. Unfortunately, that's when they they break up again and they run out of money, so they have to take odd jobs to hopefully uh, either earn a visa or earn a trip uh, flight back home. Oh dear. <laughs> yeah again, classic romance classic romantic yeah. comedy setup <laughs> well, I, I, speaking of the romance, I should say that the, if there's only uh, only the opening scene do they really express their sexuality. Mm-hmm. The rest of the time it is kind of like bickering. Mm-hmm. Which I think is why it's very seminal, seminal for me in college because I was I was pretty ignorant back then and just thought like gay gay stuff gross. Um, but this, <laughs> wait, this how movie, is that different from now? <laughs> you tell me that fair. every day. <laughs> yeah, when I tell you something me and my husband did, you're like, oh, gay stuff gross. <laughs> <laughs> well, what the movie does, I I think does give a very honest kind of warts and all portrayal of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like kind of outside of the sexuality element of it. Like obviously that's that's the red meat that you know would attract a a, a movie going audience. However, um, speaking of red meats, um, <laughs> but uh, like we we get to hear from a character who obviously can't quit this person, and another one who who's trying to commit to, who's trying to commit to him yet like keeps getting pulled in other directions. Mm. So. It's it's really fascinating to see them both kind of independently assert this new life in Argentina. Um, the one thing I and the one thing I will say why I like this movie maybe a little bit more than Chunking Express is that Juan Kar Y restrains himself. Like you saw in the Mood for Love and how it's very stately mm-hmm. and you know long montages, very thoughtful. With his movies in the '90s, though, they were quick cuts. They were radical <laughs> Dutch angles. Whoa! And, you know, the colors blown out. Yeah. Whoa! It was, it was Danny Boyle, where'd 90s. you come from? <laughs> yeah, it was a movie for the '90s to the extreme, <laughs> and uh, he he more restrains himself here, except for like one very pivotal scene wherein uh, our lead character, played by Tony Leung, the same guy from In the Mood for Love, mm-hmm. um, he takes his lover's passport mm. just to just to kind of force him into a little bit of responsibility, and then later a very pivotal scene is that his lover confronts him like give me back my passport and um i wish he would have shot it more conventionally but instead like every c- hard cuts like on the second like and and the angles are intense and the and the colors are blown out and i felt like you don't need that like for this super dramatic scene like you don't need to you don't need to capital d direct um, <laughs> okay. for a, a scene this pivotal um hmm. but that said it's very effective and and i uh, it was very important to me because you and I frequently remind our audience that movies are useless, <laughs> with the exception of of one great point that Roger Ebert made is that uh, films are like windows are, are like machines that generate empathy. Yeah. They're windows into other lives so that we can understand. And it felt like at least for the first time i could see like a a portrait of an lg of the lgbt community that i hadn't seen before and it was like literally watching this machine generate empathy for me Mm. and so that's why i really i was happy to revisit it and really happy to see it again and recommend it to everybody everywhere so all right well i'm a little disappointed this is what it took but okay Exactly. I'm also uh, brain damaged and don't uh, see people as see people. I have to filter it through pop culture and art. Um. Well, I mean, you raise an interesting point, which is yeah, like, oh, okay. Like, yes, it happens to be a gay couple, but it doesn't really matter. Or that's kind of beside the point.
1: Well... I don't Should I be? don't want to say that, yeah. and not
0: that it doesn't matter, but it's 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 portrayed in a way that I think general audiences can understand and empathize with, yeah, but I mean that's kind of it brings up an interesting point of when I mean this is coming up more recently with like colorblind casting and issues of representation like is it is it just okay if we you know oh we use colorblind casting we cast a black guy instead of a white guy good job but also isn't it important to kind of to recognize the fact that there are cultural differences and then to also emphasize that and not necessarily like just try to make everything kind of like flatten even like if this is a gay story how does that affect things how does that make things different than if it were just a straight couple and that's uh, and that's what i that's one of the things that kind of draws me to this movie, but also kind of worries me, is the fact that, wh- like, why is it important that they're gay? Like, what does that have to say about gay relationships, as opposed to it being a straight relationship? Uh, I would say, maybe it's that, that culture, like, the fact that somebody is more, like, hedonistic. Mm. Perhaps, like, that's what that's why I made note of your the way you <laughs> <laughs> kind of received that information, because you and I probably do know people who... have live every moment like it's la- like it's their last mm-hmm. and their sex <laughs> they're their- musical about that
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: <laughs> their, their sexuality plays a part in that i think that's important i, I will say it's probably it, it, more of the focus is on tony lung's character mm-hmm. and um it i th- it is just as much maybe an immigrant story it's not really there's not a whole lot of cultural clashes going on mm-hmm. but it's a, it that's what really drives the plot and and kind of how like what what this relationship is is going like they this relationship should be moving towards a common goal and it's not Mm -hmm. essentially
1: the common goal being
0: getting out of argentina (laughs) yes getting out of argentina or whether they really want to like return to that old life Mm -hmm. um there's also talk about the family and how it also leads to some disconnect there i didn't even mention that there's also the possibility of another man um Mm -hmm. Suspect. Yeah, who's who's, who's caught uh, Tony Wong's character's eye? So scandal. Yeah, <laughs> Craig, you know I'm a bad bitch who lives for that drama. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I also should say, and what really also grabbed me is how beautifully it's directed and. Their their main reason for the trip was not just to go to Argentina, but they did want to see some waterfalls. And uh, so, you know, obviously, I'm a Western filmmaker, a Western film uh, uh, goer who likes to see goals and you know people striving towards them. So, okay, not like unromantic, unsentimental, a uh, uh, Russian <laughs> Russian movie goer who j- just wants to see you know, philosophical discussions played out before me. So, well, again, he wasn't making it for any money. So, what, what does he have to prove? That's true. Exactly. So it makes That's it true fun. art, probably. Yeah, yeah, exactly. No product placement here. Capitalism destroys art. Exactly. As it destroys everything. Yep. For I- uh, for just a. a, a unrepentant amount of growth just the, the profit margin just margin and growth that's all we're going to look at that's uh, value value is all we got to look at <laughs> just pounding the pavement always looking at value yep. we got to build our value we have to build our brand we have to build our our growth come on john let's do it <laughs> all right let's do let's it, do let's, come it. On. Let's, be, let's build this all Pounding audience. the pavement we're going to do it we're going to make it happen hey all right? social it's insatiable. media it connection won't stop. engagement <laughs> content yes We've got Twitter, we've got Facebook, we've got Instagram. You can find us on all three, you can follow us on all three, and you better follow us on all three, okay? God damn it, we got, yes. we've got money to make. <laughs> <laughs> yes engage with us write to us on those social media platforms twitter instagram facebook write to us at aspiring snobs at gmail.com keep them coming in all right listen to us on those platforms <laughs> i just hit my microphone <laughs> <laughs> ratings listen to reviews, us on those platforms five stars spotify apple podcast stitcher they're all there they all matter you have to give us yes. ratings you have to hit it hard always be closing <laughs> yes that's, I think we're doing a great job here. I think I think we're doing a fantastic job. Yeah. If we're not number one on if the I iTunes charts by the end of tomorrow, then I don't know what we did wrong. <laughs> yeah. If I didn't already give away uh, what I do for a living just by sitting at a desk all day, clearly I'm not a salesman. No. <laughs> I believed it, Greg. Oh, thank Are you sure you're not an actor? <laughs> Oh, people definitely got that. I'm not an improviser. Like, uh, uh yes and um
1: <laughs> oh, I agree.
0: <laughs> Greg, we we've, we've we've given them all the prerequisites. We've given them the news. We've given them the movie for discussion. We've given them spotlight and we've given them the plugs. I think there's only yeah. one thing left we need to give them and that's the movie we're watching next week. Okay, I thought it was going to be a copy of Dianetics, but I'm glad you brought it. <laughs> no, Greg, we got to ease him into that, okay? Okay, <laughs> you're right, you're right. It's been subtly woven it's through. It's a soft self. All it's 150 soft episodes. <laughs> yes. Well, John, as I said, life is moving faster and faster. All right, we've got to move growth. We got to... And it is, in fact, one of our greatest consumerist holidays of all, Halloween, coming up very soon. Indeed. So for the month of October, we will be looking at horror movies through the ages, starting with uh, the 1956 the horror cult classic i don't know how to classify it all i know is that stephen queen's in it it's the blob <laughs> it's a schlock spectacular that's what i'll call it yeah all movies from there yeah. have, a, have a certain level of schlock uh we're not big schlock guys honestly because i no. i think there's a lot of people on the internet who already do that kind of subject matter a lot better than we do <laughs> <Uh-oh>. yes <laughs> but also i think we're we're kind of more in our wheelhouse reexamining movies that again have that kind of that aura that cultural veneer it's like yes this is a true classic and we can knock them down a pick no one's going to get anything out of us like already knocking down shitty movies <laughs> yeah. well i'm not sure about uh being a maybe a a true classic or something something to stand out above those other schlocky movies that People on the internet examine, but I do know it's a bit self-reflexive because the centerpiece of the movie, I know, takes place in like a movie theater or something. Oh. So maybe it was a maybe it's a, a it's a postmodernist classic. We don't know yet, do we? No. I mean, I know the maybe it ends like the uh, uh, what's it called the um, Little Shop of Horrors? No, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where he literally turns to the camera and ah. it's like, and they're
1: out there too, <laughs> 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 and the blob
0: is in this movie theater as we speak. Yes. Deep breath. Do- <laughs> marvelous, Greg. Shout out Don- John DiMaggio, voice of Bender. Yep, that's great. Marvelous, marvelous. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you everybody for listening. <laughs> and until next time, do. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Taking of a snake tail make do blazing swords trades the haze praise the lord saving grace lace your broad she say she bored a crazy straw ink and stale dry paraffin candy corn crap rappers pale by comparison a batch